Hello, and welcome to the next segment of Let's Get It Straight. This is Catherine West, Infection Control Consultant. Our topic today is going to be community paramedicine and the need for infection control procedures. Currently, EMS training focuses on emergent care, what you do for a patient in the field. But so we have some program needs that we need to make sure are in place before we undertake this new and very much needed format for patient care. There needs to be established nationwide a consistent scope of practice for community paramedicine and mobile integrated health. And we need nationwide consistent policy regulations. These are very important as you make the transition from emergent care to home care and long-term care. So the overall goals for CPE and MIH programs is to assist in reducing 911 calls, reduce emergency room crowding, and reduce hospital readmissions. So where do we begin? And is your department ready? With regard to where we are on consistent scope of practice, an article published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care in 2018 found that there was a lack of guidance and consistency regarding CP programs and scope of practice. The study also stated that it is unclear if current state oversight regarding the scope of practice for paramedics provides clear guidance on the novel, let's stress, novel functions provided and skills performed by community paramedicine programs. A comparison of comparing community paramedicine policies across the United States was conducted in November of 2019. This review found that 23 states had passed laws that regulate community paramedicine. Three states passed legislation for working groups to evaluate the feasibility of undertaking such programs. Six states have ongoing statewide CP pilot projects. Nine states contain specific out, uh, language outlining the types of services that CP programs or professionals can provide, such as health assessments, chronic disease management, hospital discharge follow-up and care, and medication compliance. Eight states have general authority laws with language stating that CP providers may provide whatever services are within their scope of practice as long as such services are authorized by a physician or EMS medical director or are part of a patient's care plan. 
So what were the results of this analysis um, that was published in April of 2019? Researchers found that EMS agencies had the highest consistency with assessing vital signs, administering breathing treatments, and assessing glucose levels. Truly, these are the same procedures that would be done in emergent care as practices. However, compliance took a real turn when we started looking at things that would be tasks in uh, community paramedicine and MIH programs, assessing patient drug interactions, patient safety in their home care setting, providing asthma education. So this is a, a real clear example of how home care differs so much from emergent care and we need to be addressing. So when we look at issues in home care, we're going to talk about infection prevention, readmission prevention, focus on long-term care for the patients. In emergent care, our contact with the patient is generally short. So this is the opposite. And we also need to be looking at patient safety. So EMS plays a role in the home setting for care of indwelling devices. You know, you start them in the field, what are the procedures for caring for them in the home? Administering injections, providing wound care, cleaning of contaminated environment, and transmission of illness between healthcare uh, workers and patients. So our educational needs here for patient and family, education and training for the family on how to do proper dressing changes, good hand washing technique, how to assess for signs of infection and maintaining an ongoing patient record. So it's really important to be aware of some changes that were made in the healthcare law that come into play in the practice of community paramedicine and MIH. Medical facilities will receive a 3% reduction in government reimbursement if there are frequent readmissions to that facility. Also, the facility may not get reimbursed for the care for that patient's infection. So one of the main goals in the practice of CP and MIH is to prevent hospital readmissions. As I mentioned previously, hospital could get non-payment by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services for that infection. And 3% reduction in government reimbursement may seem small, but I can assure you it is quite a sizable amount of money to the medical facility. 
It's also important to remember that the CDC guidelines are being enforced by OSHA. And they are enforced by OSHA using Part A of the General Duty Clause. So the General Duty Clause is very broad. It doesn't require that OSHA have a regulation governing um, what they're enforcing. They can simply uh, enforce the CDC guidelines and they are doing so. It's also important to remember that OSHA guidelines are federal law and they override department policy. So let's talk about vaccines and immunizations for individuals who are caring for patients in the home care setting. Well, hepatitis B vaccine for sure. Everyone should have received by now uh, a one-time booster for tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis. Measles, mumps, rubella vaccine uh, or having had the disease needs to be documented. The same with chickenpox, either documentation of the illness or receipt of vaccine. Seasonal flu vaccine is to be offered to all healthcare workers and EMS personnel are in the definition of healthcare personnel. TB testing on hire only and not again unless an exposure occurs. That came about in May of 2019. And of course, COVID-19 vaccine is to be offered to all healthcare workers. So records become important. We have to be able to access, to know your status. Are you protected or are you in need of being offered preventative vaccine? So you need to get your records and they would be kept on file confidential and the designated infection control officers will have access to that information 24-7, which will allow them to jumpstart uh, post-exposure follow-up. We also need to ask our existing workforce about their status. Now, at this point in time, people can decline to give this information, but I would begin to prepare that that certainly will be changing. Your records are obtainable from your schools, both high school and college. Your training programs, Many training programs are requiring all these vaccines before entry to an EMS training program. Your previous uh, employer, and if you were in the military, the VA clinics will have your records as well. Uh, they are computerized. So the employer has the responsibility to review the records as I mentioned, to determine who is protected and who is not, and if someone is not protected, to offer them preventative vaccine. 
rationale. If you are protected, that also protects the patients that you are caring for. Well, we know that all departments have not mandated these vaccines for personnel. Some have, but not many at this point. Um, but according to OSHA's enforcement of the CDC guidelines, um, they have to offer them. So let's clarify declination forms. Declination forms do not remove any employee rights at all. They are important because they document that the employer has met the responsibility to offer them. So they are required to be signed. So will all these vaccines be mandated? The question of the day. <laughs> and we all have to remember that as we have transition into patient care, we are first to do no harm. We shouldn't be posing a risk to the patients that we are caring for. Some medical facilities um, have already, and I think pretty much all of them, um, put into effect that trainees cannot do clinical rotations if they signed declination forms. So that means they are required to get them to enter EMS training programs today. On COVID-19 vaccine, uh, the latest executive order uh, states that uh, healthcare personnel uh, who are receiving Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement um, are to be required to receive COVID-19 vaccine. And as of uh, the date of this recording, which is October the 2nd, um, that has been upheld by the courts. Many of you have been assisting with COVID-19 vaccine coverage in your communities. Personally, I've been very impressed uh, by the programs that have been set up and um, administered by fire EMS personnel. But we're expanding beyond that to all vaccines. As healthcare workers, we have a duty to care. We have a responsibility to protect our patients from infection to protect yourself and to protect your coworkers. And that is really important to keep in mind. Now, with home care, um, as I've mentioned earlier, the practices differ greatly from those in emergent care. So let's talk about what they are and see if you have things well established in your programs. So are these items that we're going to review in just a moment part of your training and established step-by-step -step SOPs for care? 
In many instances, however, the cart's been put before the horse and people have started up uh, CP and MIH programs without really recognizing the difference in um, the type of care that's going to be rendered and having procedures, step-by-step -step procedures on how they are to be performed. So uh, on your state regulations, 16 states only have addressed laws addressing community paramedicine. So as I mentioned earlier in the study in pre-hospital emergency care published in 2018, there's been an overall lack of guidance and consistency regarding these established programs and them being in line with your scope of practice. So what standard operating procedures are needed? Number one, proper Foley catheter care and positioning to prevent infection. If patients have a IV line in place, how do you do proper site care um, in the home care setting? Wound care, how are dressing changes to be performed? Patient and family education on infection control procedures. It's important to note that medical waste rules differ state to state and are very different for home care than for emergent care. How to dispose of unused medications. Injections of vaccines and immunizations and maintaining that ongoing patient medical record. These are just a few of them. Training needs, we're not talking here about just general infection control practices. We're talking about step-by-step -step procedures for how things are done in the home care setting. So in looking at basic infection control practices that you all should be trained in, practicing standard precautions, a knowledge base of transmission-based precautions, what care is needed based on the transmission of a patient's illness, proper hand hygiene, use of personal protective equipment, vaccines, and cleaning and disinfection. Those infection control procedures are important um, in home care as well as emergent care. But as you are about to see, some of them are very different in home care. And that's where we need to be stressing our training to meet those differences. We need to make sure that your practices are updated and that they are evidence-based. And you want to make sure to reference the infection control literature. Not EMS, but you've got to go outside to the infection control national standards, especially for home care. So home care infection control practices um, 
have they been addressed in your expansion of care? So once again, our requirements are IV line site care, Foley catheter meato care and proper positioning of catheter tubing, dialysis shunt care, wound care, Sharps disposal, which is very different than what is in um, emergent care, general safety in the home environment, and how would infections be reported that are noted in patients under your care. There's also a difference in technique. We've all learned aseptic technique, a set of specific practices and procedures uh, in controlled conditions with the goal of minimizing contamination. However, in the home care setting, we're going to be using a clean technique, which involves hand hygiene, ensuring a clean environment, using clean gloves. If you're doing a dressing change, you may be using sterile instruments. Preventing direct contamination of materials and supplies. So very different. Clean technique is the practice in home care. Assessment of post-discharge to home. Every patient has post-discharge instructions from the medical facility. Whether they're a medical patient or a surgical patient, they should have detailed instructions of those patients' care needs. And we have to be able to educate patient and family with regard to those needs. So safety in the home for ambulation, you need to have a checklist looking at the area that a patient may be uh, using, um, pathways, are they cleared, uh, or are there things that need to be cleared to create a safer uh, environment. So some other differences in home care. As I mentioned previously, probably twice, the need for education and training of patient and family. We're going to be using clean technique and sharps management is very different. So differences, we're going to be doing cleaning with items such as baking soda and vinegar, hand washing, is going to be very different, bar soap, and medical waste disposal of sharps is very different as well. So disinfection in the home is going to be very different. Vinegar, baking soda are good agents for disinfection in the home care setting. Families do not need to purchase and departments do not need to furnish hospital grade products. Vinegar, for example, has been a very effective disinfectant agent for centuries. Hand washing will be using bar soap. 
There's absolutely nothing wrong with using bar soap. Home health nurses have done this for years. In fact, it's a good time to point out that if a patient has C. diff or norovirus, we are to use bar soap and warm water that our alcohol-based cleaning agents will not kill C. diff or norovirus. So how about dis uh, disposal of sharps? Here's where your state laws are very clear that the rules are very different. Coffee cans and thick uh, detergent bottles can be used for disposal of sharps in the home care setting. We do not have to have families purchase or supply them with um, our standard sharps containers that are used in emergent care. But we sure want to label them uh, that they contain sharps and they should not be recycled. Foley catheter bags, we may have be dealing more with leg bags in the home care setting um, than with indwelling catheters. So how do we care for that bag? How do we clean it? That should be a procedure. And proper positioning, always the bag for drainage must be below the level of the bladder so that urine does not back up and result in patient infection. If you're doing blood draws, we have to make sure that we are doing a proper site prep. And in today's world, 2% chlorhexidine is the standard site prep for blood draws, not alcohol and not povidone iodine. Exposure control plans need to be adapted to have a separate section, or better yet, a separate plan for the home care setting. Compliance monitoring is also important. As you know, that's a requirement of an exposure control plan um, from OSHA. So as we do a plan for uh, CP and MIH, we need to address this as well. And the gold standard for compliance monitoring is direct observation and checkoff. What's the value of compliance monitoring? Well, we can identify additional training needs or refresher training that's needed, it's certainly liability protection. If a hospital is not gonna be reimbursed for a patient infection, it is a good thing to have documentation that you have monitored that your personnel are properly complying with uh, infection control procedures. So the basics need to be in place before expansion into mobile uh, integrated health and community paramedicine. And you need to seek assistance 
from other sources. You know, um, there shouldn't be a hesitancy to go outside the box and go to people with expertise to help ensure that your SOPs for MIH and CP are proper. We shouldn't be hesitant to do that. So here are three resources that you might want to take a look at. Uh, the CDC guidelines for infection control in home care, infection control policies and procedures for CP and MIH, and uh, the American Nurses Association Essential Principles for Utilization of Community Paramedics. So welcome under the umbrella of healthcare. Uh, you are in the formal definition with uh, OSHA and with the CDC. So let's be prepared to practice properly in the best interest of the patients that we're caring for. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope that you have gotten some useful information. I've given you my contact information. If you want more assistance or clarification on any of the things that we've discussed in this session today. Thank you again for all that you've done in the time of COVID. Let's hope things are um, well resolved for 2022. Take care. Bye-bye.